All right, hello everybody. I hear that we are ready to go. I got the heads up from Mark, the amazing Mark technology wizard, Mark. And so we are set. Um, I hope you all also picked up a sheet. You know, there's a missing page that you should have gotten today if I didn't hand it to you yet. Uh, but I hope you have one because I'm out. Oops, there's one left. So if anyone needs one, there there is one left yet. There you go. Where's a little pile? Yeah, we gave them away already. Everybody's missing a page of this one. Yes. See, what happened was I'm out. So you'll have to share with those around you if you, like, have an extra look for someone that's losing, doesn't have one. Uh, you see, what happened was somehow I only printed half of your last page of Unit 31. So in your book, you probably have on your third page, you have half of what we just passed out. So the sheet is a full and complete page three. Uh, so I'm sorry about that, everybody. Um, but it is what it is. We're talking about the government today, so I have permission to make mistakes. That's just the way it's going to go. All right. Also, you should have gotten a pink slip. Uh, not that kind of pink slip. Although we are talking about the government. <laughs> So that's the, um, our congregational forums are coming up, uh, not this weekend, but next. And so we really hope that you'll be able to join us for those as there's some really exciting information we want to share with you. Um, every once in a while, I hear people say, I wish I knew more about what's happening in the church. You know, and I go, okay, that's cool. So we're having these forums. So you all come. If you want to know more what's going on and what God's doing, then this is the time for you. It's just us to share some information. And it's also for us to listen as you give us some feedback. We'll talk about our 75th anniversary. You know, we celebrate our 75th anniversary as a church next February. So there's a whole bunch of activities through the year that we'll do to celebrate uh, what God has done for 75 years. Isn't that amazing? And we're also going to talk about how we're going to prepare for the next 75. What do we need to do to make sure that the gospel is ready for our kids and our grandkids and our great grandkids? And, man, I hope I have grandkids someday, those kids. Um, you know, so how do we prepare ourselves for the next 75? What do we need to do? And we're talking about a capital campaign and uh, some expansion plans that we want to bounce off of you all and get your feedback and thoughts about. So that will be talked about at the, at the forum. We'll talk about our staffing. You know, we're hiring a new director of family life ministry, and we're talking about replacing Miss Becca, and there's just a lot of things going on. So if you want to know more about it and share your input, any one of those three. And then here's one little thought about that. The one on Saturday, April 29th, at, uh, after the 5 o'clock worship, uh, we... Before the meeting starts at 6, there's an open house at the Celebration Ministry Center. And uh, I'm amazed always at how little uh, a lot of folks here at the faith site know about what happens over at our celebration site. With an incredible day school, an incredible child care center, maybe you've not seen their rooms. Maybe you've not seen the playground. Maybe you've not seen how um, they fight for every inch of space. Maybe you've not seen how the library just stretches down the whole hallway. <laughs> um, because it, anyway, if you want to just take a look and see that, join us for that at 6, and the meeting will start at 6.30. So you can see a little bit uh, what that looks like too. All right, so 
That's what your pink form is all about. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Same program at all three. Unless people sidetrack as well, different questions, but same presentation anyway. All right, y'all ready to dig in? Let's have a word of prayer, and uh, we'll get started with the Word of God this evening. Oh, gracious Lord, Heavenly Father, here we are for Unit 31 of Romans. That's a long time we've been together. That's a long time we've been digging into this book. And yet, every time we open the pages and, and stick our shovel into the Word and do some digging, new things just seem to spring up, and we just learn more. It's just proof to me, God, that this word is a living word, and it's your word, and it's just full of, of truths uh, that we need to know for life. And so we are so thankful and grateful for the word that we study tonight, and ask again that you would just open our hearts and minds, especially as we talk tonight about mm, kind of a controversial subject, uh, how we uh, respond to government and how we treat the government and what is the role of government in our lives as believers? And so as we mess with that, we just ask God that you would um, just clear away all the roadblocks and let the word speak truly and clearly to us about our responsibilities to the government and its responsibility to us and your purpose in it. So uh, thanks for this um, uh, time and pray that you bless it and use it well in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, my friends, I still don't know how this happened. How in the world did we get this class on government tax day? Right? Because today is tax day, isn't it? How on earth did that happen, right? So, I don't know. There's a couple of two little jokes right there. Uh, the IRS, if you look at it, actually says theirs. Do you think that's a coincidence? I don't either. Or my favorite, Bill Murray, said the best way to teach your kids about taxes is by eating 30% of their ice cream. So anyway, uh, we have all kinds of feelings and thoughts about the government, don't we? And what's appropriate and what's right. Uh, I don't know. It, just a coincidence that God's got us talking government on tax day? I don't know. But anyway, it is what it is. So, yes, sir. Right what? In, in the book of Romans? Well, it's a good thing you're here because that's exactly what we're going to talk about. Yes, he wrote it. And do you see, there's, yes. Yes, he wrote it. But you know what? It does bring up a good point. When Paul wrote this, Christians weren't being persecuted yet. So think about that, right? The persecution that came from Rome on Christians didn't come years after this when Paul wrote the book of Romans. At this point in time, Christianity was still an accepted religion in the Roman world. It was considered part just like a sect of Judaism, and Judaism was an accepted religion. So, you know, they didn't face the persecution yet when Paul wrote Romans. That's going to come later, like when Nero, you know, uh, killed all those Christians. That was after Paul wrote this. So maybe <laughs> he would have changed the tune a little bit. I don't know. But yes, he did write it, for sure. All right, so... Here we are. One, two, three. Here we go. Let's get our bearings. I always love to remember where we are in the book of Romans, right? We're in the final section of Romans. You remember that? 
which is the real practical application session, section of Romans. You remember the big turning point in Romans 12, verse 1? There's a word. It goes like this, therefore. <laughs> and you all know what therefore means. That, that, that means whatever has come before, now taking what we've already learned, taking what we've already talked about, now what? That's what therefore means. So here, it, there's a twist that happens in Romans chapter 12. Now, after all the theology and all the doctrine and understanding, you know, uh, who God is and how he treats us, now it's the, the great Lutheran, what does this mean? How do I practice this? How does this theology translate into real-life living? And that's where he's going to start with chapter 12 through the end of the book. So we've already talked about uh, this practical session last week and the week before. We started digging a little bit about, as he's going to talk about practicality, he talks about relationships. He's already talked about our relationship to God. He's already talked about our relationship with one another. He's already talked about our relationship with the church. He's already talked about our relationships with our enemies. Do you all remember that discussion, everybody? Just nod your head like this. Make me feel good. Thank you. Right? So today, he's going to talk about another relationship, the relationship we have with the government. It's every bit as important as any of these other relationships we just talked about. And there's a good way that we can have this relationship and a bad way, and he's certainly going to explain that to us. So today, we're still, it's really practical. Now that you know all this stuff that God's done for you and what it means to be a believer and a follower, how do you practice it in the real world we live, especially with government? So you're going to see today on our study, these are the three sections that we're going to look at. If you're just looking at your book with your missing page, you're only going to see the first two sections. <laughs> because for some crazy reason, I left off the third section. So your missing page then is the third piece. So today we're going to talk about the nature of government. We're going to talk, or I'm going to, I should say that differently. St. Paul is going to talk about the nature of government. He's going to talk about the purpose of government. And he's going to talk about our responsibility and our relationship that we have with the government. So those are the three big chunks that you'll see on your study guide that we're going to work through today. All right. So we're going to start with the first section, the nature of government. Right. And in this section, you're going to see that there's three things that we're going to chat about in the nature of government. We're going to see that civil government is a part of God's purposes for the world. We're going to see that government leaders are servants of God himself. And we're going to learn, as St. Paul teaches us, that civil government is only temporary. Yet, yeah, right? So again, don't panic. We're going to get at each one of these one at a time. So if you haven't written them down, don't hate me when I switch right now. So here's number one. Civil government is a part of God's purpose for the world. Why do we say that? St. Paul said in Romans 13, he said, everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except that which God has established. Right? Do you see how clear that is? Right? The authorities that exist have been established by God. Consequently, he who rebels against the authority is rebelling against what God has instituted. And those who do so will bring judgment on themselves. And Paul's not mincing words right out of the chute, is he? Right? So the first thing he wants us to understand is that the idea of government, the idea of an authority that has been placed over us 
in our communities, in our societies, is not a man-made idea. It's not a man-made institution. It's a God-given thing. All right, do you see that, everybody? So already, maybe you're going to have to reorient your mind a little bit about what you think about government. <laughs> When's the last time you said, I'm so glad my government is a God-ordained institution? <laughs> maybe it's been a while, huh? Yeah, right? Uh, so right off the bat, we've just got to understand St. Paul's clear teaching that government is not an accident. It's not a man-made thing, but it's God's thing. It's God's purpose for the world. So note this. St. Paul doesn't mention any specific form of government. And that's important, right? Because we Americans like to think that our form of government is the only God-ordained form of government. That's not true. That is not true, right? Uh, in fact, what I believe is that there are some forms of government that are better than others, but no human government is perfect. Does anybody believe government is perfect? Probably not, right? So, but the point I'm trying to make with this is, is that it's important that when it says that God established government we can't think to ourselves, we get into this, America is a godly nation thing, and that our government is the only God-ordained way of doing things. That's not what St. Paul is saying here. So we need to be careful as we start mashing through this, right? There's not one form of human government that is ordained. God works through all forms of government, whether they're good or bad, whether they're helpful or not, whether they're evil they still, God works through them to accomplish his will. And we'll, we'll deal into that a little more detail as we move through. But for now, we're just laying this foundation. All government is a part of God's purposes for the world. All right? So uh, it's interesting as we think through this. If you read the Bible, there's only three what we call institutions that God has sort of instituted, uh, that he has you know, put into motion. Again, on your outline, you can see these three things. So the first institution is the family. So again, I want to say the same thing I said about government. Family is not an option. Family is not made up by God. Family is not just sort of coincidence, the way things turned out in this world, you know, uh, over time. But it's a God-ordained, God-instituted thing. God, when he planned out the world, planned for people to be in families. And do you know what family means, everyone? Family means a husband, that's a man, a wife, that's a woman, and together they come together and have children, and that's what God calls a family. And that is not up for debate. That's not something that we can just change because we didn't make it. We didn't institute it. We didn't create it. It wasn't our idea. We can't vote on what we want to call a family. We can't vote on what we want to say is a marriage. Because that's a God thing. All right, are you okay with me, everybody? Right? You know, you and I might agree with that. But if we stood up in downtown Appleton and said this, people would start throwing tomatoes at us. You're lucky if it's tomatoes. You know, not everybody agrees with this, right? But the family is a God-ordained institution. And I believe 
It is the foundation of every healthy society. And once the family is ripped apart, society crumbles as a result. And we see that happening around us today, don't we? God had a plan about how things were supposed to work. And when that plan is messed up, then everything gets messed up. All right, family is one of the three institutions. You know what the second one is? The church. The church is also an institution that God himself invented, that God himself created. Uh, he, he knew that we needed each other, that we needed to come together. He knew that, that we were created to each be a part of the body of Christ. And in this beautiful body of Christ, each and every one of us has a different purpose. Each and every one of us has a different gift. Each and every one of us is vital to the whole. And each and every one of us would absolutely die if we were cut off from the body. The examples in the Bible abound about the church. The body of Christ is one. Um, that Jesus is the vine and we are the branches is another. You know, there, there's all these beautiful pictures of the thing called the church. We need each other. We were created for each other. We were created to be in community with one another. So again, we can't change that. We can't invent a different way of doing things because this is God's thing. It's his institution, the church. And the third one, government. Government is also an institution created by God. Now, again, when you hear government, when we talk about that word as we're talking how Paul uses it, maybe a better way to talk about it is authority. Because when we hear government, we immediately lock into our understanding of government here in the United States of America, right? A republic, you know, uh, we think of that. When really it's just one form of authority that God has placed over people and over communities in order to accomplish his plan and purpose. But again, an idea of a society with no government, a society with no rules, a society with no authority, that's not God's plan. That's not the way he wanted it to be. He knew that we needed this government, this authority in our world. So these are three vitally important institutions that uh, God created. Thoughts or questions? Mark, we need you. Thank you, sir. We made him sit closer to you so he's not all the way up in the front. I think this is a tough one for us to understand because with the different forms of government, we have, I mean, I can understand that the different forms of government, but we have some governments that are corrupt and, and, and kill people. So how is we, how are we as human beings accept the fact that God put those authorities in place? Because that's what I, I read that God put those people in authority. Sure. And so here's the key to remember on this. God put the authority in place, but he didn't put the individual person in place. God didn't put Hitler in the authority of the government position that he was in. That's not what this is saying. The, the way I kind of look at it is when, when you salute and you pay respect to someone who is in a uniform, you salute the uniform, not the person, 
right? And that's the way it is when we're talking about government and authority. God instituted the government and the authorities over us, and God uses all kinds of people in that government to accomplish his plan and purpose. Good people, bad people, believers, unbelievers. He still uses them in his way to accomplish his plan and purpose. But we're going to actually get into a whole section about that a little bit later, so hopefully it'll get even a little more clear. Yes. With all of this, I mean, God has kind of put things in place, but it's not like he doesn't want us to go and kind of respond to evil. I mean, he says we don't, we don't accept evil. We do things against it. So it doesn't mean that we can't go against the people in the government. Absolutely. The government and the authority is there, but that doesn't mean we have to sit on our hands and let them Absolutely. run over us. Not what we're saying all at all. Yeah. And again, that's another whole section we're going to get to tonight. You know, how do we how do we still respect authority and also obey God at the same time if they contradict one another? We're going to chat about that. Um, it, it seems like God has given, not just about everything, but a lot of the things, God has given us two sides. Like, like, um, like abortion. You know, it, it's what the Bible says, and, and I believe that. And the government says, well, it may be right. So we need to support God in what he says. Always. But it also says support, you know, stand behind the government. Yes. So, again, there's a whole section coming on just that thing. So if you okay. can just hold, we're going to get into what do we do when the government passes an unjust, ungodly law? What do we do? Who do we obey? And so we'll talk about, St. Paul is going to talk about that very thing. Okay. Other ones? Anyone else? You guys are just ready to get into it, man. All right, let's move. So these three beautiful institutions, one of them is the government, and that's why St. Paul is not bashful and not afraid to clearly teach us what this institution is, what it is supposed to do, and what it is supposed to look like. All right? So remember, we're in this section right now, which is the nature of government. So St. Paul's trying to show us what it looks like. Uh, so that first one was, remember this, civil government's a part of God's purpose for the world. The second one, government leaders are servants of God. Here's how St. Paul said this. For rulers hold no terror for those who do right, but for those who do wrong. Do you want to be free from the fear of the one in authority? Well, then do what's right. And he will commend you, for he is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, then be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. He is God's servant, an agent of wrath, to bring punishment on the wrongdoer. So, do you hear, again, what St. Paul is saying? That these people now, the government leaders, right, are God's servants to carry out his will. They're God's servants, that we're going to see in a little bit, to enforce God's commands, to reward those who obey, and to punish those who disobey. Right? That was God's plan. And God uses these leaders in the government authorities to accomplish that. Whether they know it or not, <laughs> whether, whether they're good or evil, it doesn't matter. God uses them, just like he uses all of us, to accomplish his plan and purpose. So let's talk more. 
right? And, and I want to just look at some scriptures for you about this one. Uh, look at Psalm 72. This isn't just Paul who says these things, is what I'm trying to encourage you to see. Not just weird Paul who's making up weird things, right? But the whole of Scripture agrees with this, that the leaders are appointed by God to accomplish His will. So Psalm 72, verses 1 to 4, it says, Endow the king with your justice, O God, the royal son with your righteousness. He will judge your people in righteousness, your afflicted one with justice. The mountains will bring prosperity to the people, the hills the fruit of righteousness. He will defend the afflicted among the people and save the children of the needy. He will crush the oppressor. And now verses 12 and 14. For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no one to help. He will take pity on the weak and the needy and save the needy from death. He will rescue them from oppression and violence, for precious is their blood in his sight. So, in God's grand plan of things, how is he going to care for the needy? How is God going to care for the oppressed? How is God going to reach out and help those who need to be helped, protect those who are vulnerable? What's God's plan to make that happen? The leaders that he appoints in government who will enact, as you just heard, just laws and will enforce those just laws so that God's will is done and people are cared for the way God would want them to. Do you see the plan of God? It's all beautiful, isn't it? Until people get involved. Right? And then that's when it gets all messed up. Right? But again, don't. this happens all the time in the Bible. God has an ideal God tells us the way he wants things to work and how things are supposed to work. He lays out for us the, the vision of how things are supposed to function. And it's our job to do our best to make sure that it does. But it doesn't always, does it? And when it falls, it gets ugly. And that's certainly we see in government too, don't we? But don't let a, a sinful use of government dissuade you from the good purpose that God has for government. Do you see where I'm going with this, everyone? This is really important that somehow we're able to distinguish what God wants and what actually is. <laughs> right? Are you with me? Right? But for now, we just need to know government leaders are servants from God. There's another one, Isaiah chapter 10. Would you turn there? Verses 1 through 3. Here's what Isaiah says. Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you, these are these evil leaders, whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. So, do you see God saying here? There is a purpose that he has for the leaders. And when they violate that purpose, right? When they turn contrary to that purpose, God's will is not done. 
but their day will come. Did you hear that there? Pretty clear in Isaiah. All right. So we cannot get past this, that God uses government leaders to accomplish his purposes. Whether they know it or not, whether they believe in him or not, God is at work through each and every one of them in his own God way to accomplish his plan and his purpose. All good? All right. Next, we're still talking about the nature of government, right? Uh, civil government is only temporary. We need to remember that God, when he established this thing, did it just for this world. 1 Corinthians 15, St. Paul said, Then the end will come when he, Jesus, hands over the kingdom to God the Father. And when does he do that? After he has destroyed all dominion, authority, and power. A day is coming, says St. Paul, when all the governments of the world now that seem so powerful, uh, seem to be so much in charge, these things are going to be toppled. They're going to be destroyed and done away with. And in the kingdom to come, there will not be any more government like we have now. Eventually, God will abolish all human forms of government and will live in the ultimate government, the kingdom of God. Right? And who will be our president? Yeah, exactly. God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Right? He will be our leader. And he will be the one who uh, sets the course for our actions and how we live and work and have our being. Right? So we, we just need to know that this, all this stuff we see is temporary. It's not going to last forever. So uh, Philippians 2, again, Paul said, At the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That day is coming, right? When Jesus returns and all governments fall and every knee bows. So no matter what form of government we're under, we need to remember it's just temporary. It's not eternal. God's kingdom is eternal. Our kingdoms on earth are not. Y'all get that? That was pretty easy, pretty clear. All right, so now let's move from the nature of government. That's what it is. That's what God intends for it to be. That's the reason that it's here. Now let's move to the purposes. And we're going to see that there's four things. Again, this is straight out of St. Paul's mouth. Four reasons that there are uh, specific reasons for government. One, to protect human life. Two, to protect personal and property rights. Third, to handle disputes between people. And fourth, to punish lawbreakers. And again, we're going to look at each one of these four, so don't panic right now when I switch. Some of you type A people are going, give me more time. So the first purpose of government is to protect human life. It's so important. We all know Exodus 20, verse 13, the fifth commandment, you shall not murder. All life is precious to God, regardless of age, regardless of perceived value to society. You do know how opposite that is of what we hear in our world today, right? Life begins at a certain age, not at conception. Life is only valuable so long as it can contribute to society, as long as there's some worth that we can glean or gather from it, right? That's not what God teaches. God is very clear in the scriptures that all life is precious in his sight. And when does life start, friends? Third trimester? Second trimester? First trimester? 
as soon as you can wear a cute little cuddly Green Bay Packer jersey? No. When? Conception. From the moment of conception, that is a life that is precious by God. And he has given the government the responsibility of protecting that little life. And he's also given the government the responsibility to protect life at the end of days. You know, we're, we're getting closer and closer to physician-assisted suicide, to euthanasia, to being able to say, Grandma's really not much help anymore, so we're just going to pull the plug. We're not far away from those days because of the devaluing of life, or maybe a better way to say it, the qualifying of life you know, the quantifying of life, that, that life is valuable so long as it adds something to our lives or our community. So you shall not murder. And a role and purpose of the government is to protect life. Look, Genesis 9 already. God said, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For in the image of God, God has made man. You know what I think? I think this verse is talking about capital punishment. That the, that the Bible is clear that God has given the government the authority to punish with capital punishment. Right? That the, the authority, you don't have that authority as an individual, but the authority of the government to, um, to kill those who have been convicted of murder. Right? I believe that's a, a God-given, uh, Bible-based, a power or authority that the church ha- or that government has. However, right? Is it allowed in the Bible? I would say yes. But here's the million-dollar question: Is it the best way to punish and deter crime? That's the maybe. That's the debatable point. See, the Bible doesn't command the government to do capital punishment. It gives the government the ability to use it if it deems necessary. And so what is necessary? That debate we can have. We can chat about that. Does capital punishment really deter crime? I don't know. Does capital punishment really um, uh, bring value to our community and our society? Or does it devalue community and society? So that debate wages. But don't miss the point. The point is God has given the government the right to enforce capital punishment. And now each government needs to decide what's right for the days and the times in which we live. So, I don't know, I don't want to get into a big capital punishment debate with you right now, you know, but I just do want to be clear that the Bible, verses like, whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed, is pretty clear the government has the right to do that if it so chooses. All right, you with me? And so the point then is that life is so precious to God that anyone who takes a life needs to be stopped from ever taking a life again. Now, how we do that, whether it's capital punishment, whether it's a life sentence, whether, I don't know, whatever else community and society can do to rehabilitate or to change, the point is life is precious to God and must be protected in all, in all cases, and he has given the government the authority to do so. Our government is really wrestling with that right now, right? What do we do with life? You know, we're kind of all over the place on that right now. I think he's coming your way, Marty. <clears throat> Thank you.
that's what I was kind of getting to before. Now, he's got two things up there. One is that God loves life. Do not kill. The next one says, we, it's also ahead, okay to kill. <laughs> yeah, I see what you're saying. So does God, that's a, that is just such a great insight, Marty. God doesn't, God is not pleased with capital punishment. It's not his will that there be capital punishment. But God allows for that in our sinful world because he knows that that will curb or, you know, protect life. You know, it's the same with uh, when they asked Jesus about divorce. You know, Jesus said, you know, Moses allowed for divorce, but that wasn't God's will that there be divorce. It's the same thing with capital punishment. God allows for capital punishment. That doesn't mean he wills or wants it. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah. See, there's exceptions to the, right? Like there's also a just war. Is it wrong to kill in a war? So the fifth commandment doesn't negate all murder. It negates certain kinds of murder. <laughs> right? Right? It, it, it allows for the, the, the messed up of God's creation. The mess up of God's creation allows for us to try and right the wrongs. And sometimes it takes a wrong to right that wrong. That's all I can do. That's the best I got for you there. Another one? But look in um, Oklahoma when that guy killed all those people. And he, he, he was fine with them killing him. Yeah. So yeah, that's, you know, that's part of the debate. What's a worse punishment? I mean, I'm thinking if it was me, I would just take the chair instead of spend the rest of my life in prison. What's a worse punishment, really? I don't know. But that's the debate, whether it's really helpful or not helpful. All right. So just, again, and it's easy. See how easy it is to get lost in the trees and miss the point? The point is the government has been entrusted by God to protect human life in every case possible, right, from all ages and all perceived value to society. All right. Next, purpose to protect personal and property rights. We just talked about the fifth commandment. Now, the sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, and tenth commandments, here they are for you. You should not commit adultery, you should not steal, you should not give false testimony, you should not covet anything that your neighbor owns. You know what these all are? These are like, this. these commandments can be summed up in this. Don't take stuff from your neighbor. Every one of those commandments, that's what it is. Don't take stuff from your neighbor. And that's what the government is supposed to protect. Supposed to protect the things that God has given you, the things that you have a right to have. The purpose of government is to protect people from stealing your stuff, from bearing false witness against you, from stealing your wife, from taking your house or your home, your possessions, your cow, your cattle, <laughs> all those things, right? So the purpose of government is to protect those things, it protects these personal and property rights. Again, this is not a man-made thing. That was God's idea. God said, I'm going to give you these authorities so that in this sinful world, there'll be an institution that will protect the things I want you to have. Make sense? All right. Next is the purpose of the government is to handle disputes between people. 
where two or three are gathered, there will be a dispute amongst them. Isn't that in the Bible somewhere? It's not, but it probably should be. Right? Deuteronomy. Uh, Moses says, but how can I bear your problems and your burdens and your disputes all by myself? Choose someone wise and understanding, some respected men from each of your tribes, and I'll set them over you. By the way, I don't think that's Deuteronomy 1. It's Deuteronomy, um, I think I typed that wrong. Do I have it printed in your study guide somewhere under that line? It is one? Oh, maybe it is one. Um, okay, anyway, um, it's in the Bible somewhere in Deuteronomy. Um, you see, Moses said, I can't do all of this myself. There needs to be a system. There needs to be someone in authority who can handle these disputes. So you know what Moses does? He sets up a judicial system. That's really what that is, a form of government. Someone who will who adjudicate the decisions that need to be made when people have disputes amongst them. I do wonder sometimes if we've taken this a bit too far. You ever watch Judge Judy? Or the People's Court, right? I mean, the things that we bring, you know, to bring a lawsuit against, to use our judicial, hello. You think maybe we've taken it a bit too far sometimes? Maybe. But again, don't miss the point that this idea of a judicial system that someone with authority would adjudicate our disputes is not a man-made idea. It's a God thing. It's the purpose of government. All right, next one is to punish lawbreakers. What number am I on, by the way? This is four, to punish lawbreakers. Romans 13, 4 said, He is God's servant to do you good. But if you do wrong, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword for nothing. You know, it's interesting, uh, the Greek word, there's several different words for swords in the Greek language. There's like a short sword that you would use in battle, but then there was a long sword that you would use to behead someone, right? That's the sword, the long sword that Paul uses here in this verse. He does not bear the sword for nothing. You know, that it's, it's a, a tool for punishing so government and the authorities, right, have the power to punish lawbreakers. God gives the right, the responsibility, and the authority to the government, not individuals, to punish evildoers. This is why we just can't, what was the old West style of law, right? Yeah, we're not called to be that, you know, that, that's not the way it works. We have a system instituted by God by which meat and right punishment will be meted out, right? That's, again, an institution, institution from God. Again, look at First Peter. Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men, whether to the king as the supreme authority or to the governors who are sent by him to punish those who do wrong and commend those who do right. Right? So you see, government has the responsibility to punish wrongdoing. Um, so I thought I had another thing, but I don't. So uh, again, when that happens, we should rejoice and be happy that the government is doing its job correctly. Right? Anywhere in the thought about the purposes of government? Again, uh, Mark, where'd you go? It's Marty. When 
you said we've got no right to take anybody else's life. What about when somebody's been in a coma for eight years, they are technically brain dead. By us choosing, no, we don't want them on life support anymore. Is that what we're doing? Are, no. are we taking his life? I mean, no. What? When you allow for someone to die naturally, that's not taking their life. If you believe, and this is, there's, there's not a science to this. There's not a black and white, right and wrong answer because every situation is different. It's one of the hardest decisions that you or a family will ever have to make when you're faced with that. But there comes a point where you have to say, are we just prolonging the inevitable? Or is there a chance by keeping them on life support that healing and uh, restoration can come again? And that is such a hard line. You sometimes... It's an agonizing decision. But again, understand the reasoning, right? If you just allow someone to die, that's not taking their life. Uh, but if you use medicine correctly and the gifts of technology and medicine to prolong life so that healing can come, that's a good thing. But how do you know in that? I, I've, I've been with families at that moment, and it's just a really hard decision. But so do you see where with the, the reasoning is on how we would make that decision? If you're just prolonging the inevitable, then it's okay to let them go. That's. I'm sorry, I couldn't hear you. That's why it's important to have a living will. Yeah, I agree. It's very helpful for your families. Very, very helpful. Mm-hmm. That's a cool thing. I agree. It's an amazing gift. Yeah. All right. Um, so there's a purpose for government. All right. Next, we need to get at our responsibility in relationship to government. That's the page that you're missing, right, uh, that I handed out tonight. Um, so we've talked about the nature of government, what it is that God made it. We've talked about the purpose of government, how God wants it to work. Now, the last piece is that, okay, so what's our responsibility? How do we react, interact with government, and how do we deal with government when it goes astray? So we're going to see these six things. We'll look at these one at a time. We're going to learn that Paul's going to teach us we are a citizen of two worlds. We're going to learn that our primary obedience is to God. We're going to learn that we are obey the law whenever possible. We're going to learn we're commanded to pray for our public officials, whether we like them or voted for them or not, that we are to pay taxes <laughs> required by my government, <clears throat> and six, that we are to influence our government for good. And there we'll talk about the responsibility we have in America to vote. <clears throat> so let's run through these. First of all, I'm a citizen of two, a citizen of two worlds. Paul said in Philippians, our citizenship is in heaven. And we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus. So while we're a citizen of America, of the, the United States of America, St. Paul says we are at the same time also citizens of, of heaven. What in the world does that mean? <laughs> it means that our citizenship in heaven and we're also some earthly country, we have dual citizenship. 
And here's the thing. Whenever you have dual citizenship, there's going to be conflict. Whenever there's dual citizenship, there's going to be times when they don't agree with one another, when they have different purposes, when they have different um, uh, responsibilities and expectations. So this is the fun part that you and I are going to get to play with here in this world. How do we live with this dual citizenship with one foot in the United States of America and one foot in heaven? Right. How do we mess with that? Well, isn't this good? Here's here's the Greek for today. Uh, by the way, this is a homo legumenin, which is, remember what that was? A word that's only used one time in the entire New Testament, right? Uh, this is polituma, word for citizenship. Does politikma sound like a word you might know in English? Politics. We get our word politics from this word translated citizenship in the Greek. So this whole idea of politics is this, this uh, challenge that we have of living as dual citizens on earth and in heaven. Politics is really supposed to be about how do we uh, make sure that those inconsistencies are not there? How do we make heaven a, like we pray in the Lord's Prayer? Thy kingdom come where? On earth as it is in heaven. See, that's politics. That's these two kingdoms that we need to try and resolve and work together through. So uh, Jesus had this pretty square. You remember they tried to they tried to trap him with that question, gave him a coin, and then should we? No, they tried to trap him. Should we pay tax? He said, "Give me a coin whose picture's on it." And he had that great response: "Give to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's." Can you see the dual nature of citizenship in his answer? He's, he's not denying that we don't live in both, in both, but he's saying there's a proper place for both. And we have to figure that out. Don't forget, Jesus also said, seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. So you can see where I'm going with this for the next point. Huh? You can see where this is leading. I did it again. You can see where St. Paul is going with this point, can't you? You can see where he's leading here. We live in these two kingdoms. We have to make sure that they that they work together as God intended them. But when they don't, our primary obedience is to God. So when there, yep, that's number two on your sheet, right? When there is conflict in this dual citizenship and we live, our primary obedience is to God. Uh, I love the examples we have of the, uh, the apostles. In Acts, uh, after they were commanded not to preach by the authorities, <laughs> We hear this. They called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. For we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. In other words, they said, If you're going to tell me to do something that's contrary to what God has called me to do, who am I going to listen to? Of course, they're going to follow God, right? You tell me what's right, to follow you or to follow God. Uh, later in Acts 5, the same issues. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. I love this. The high priest says, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. And yet you filled all Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Who's he talking about? About Jesus, for sure, right? 
And what were Peter and the other apostles' response? We must obey God rather than men. See, so there's the, there's the rule. So whenever these two kingdoms, the earthly kingdom and the civil kingdom, conflict with one another, where's our allegiance? It's always God's kingdom. The kingdom of God will always trump the sinful kingdom of men. Always. Now, does that mean that once they said this, that their lives just got a whole lot easier? It did not. In fact, their lives got a whole lot more complicated. And see, that's also the way it works still in this dual citizenship in which we live. Sometimes to stand up for the kingdom of God means that there will be ridicule and persecution in the kingdom of men. Right? Would you agree? Right? So even though we're saying the primary obedience is to God, we're not saying that just makes everything easy. But we're saying we're still doing what's right. Sometimes we may have to make moral choices that are unpopular and maybe even illegal if the law is in direct contradiction to what God has said. Right? So anytime that I call it an unjust law, anytime there is an unjust law, a law that's passed that's contrary to the word of God, I am bound by conscience. I am bound by the word of God to stand against that law and to face whatever consequences come my way. That's what it means to be a Christian. Now, you and I have no idea what this is like. We may think we have it bad right now. We do not. Compared to some of the things that have happened in the history of the world and compared to some of the persecution that is going on in our world as we speak. Right? People are being persecuted. People are being murdered. Their uh, uh, possessions are being confiscated because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Today, as we speak, because they took a stand for Jesus, right? So sometimes we're going to be called to do that. Luckily, we don't live in a country where we have to face that issue yet. But there are many believers in our world who face incredible persecution having to make this statement, we must obey God rather than men every single day. You may um, have heard me talk before. A while back I did a, a, a two-week mission trip in Japan. And one of the, I was working with the Japanese Lutheran Church, and Japan has a history of Christian persecution. And I was at, uh, in Tokyo, the Christian Martyrs Museum. And it was a whole museum that was dedicated to the thousands of Christians that lost their lives in Japan being persecuted for their faith. And there are things that I will never forget. Um, statues of Buddha, right? A, a little Buddha statue. And you turn it around the back and there's a little secret compartment. And you push and you pull out the chunk of wood and it was a cross. So it was believers who, you know, were forced to have a Buddha statue but they had the cross in the back. But the real thing that really struck me, I have pictures of this, if you ever want to see, was a woodcut of uh, Mother Mary holding the baby Jesus. And uh, it was a part of a, it was like the woodcut was the top of a book. And in the book was just a list of all kinds of names. And what it was, this book was traveled from village to village in Japan. And whoever would not, spit on the book and stomp on the little baby Jesus would be killed for their faith. 
And everyone who was murdered and killed, their name was printed in this book. And so I'm looking at the page, and it was page after page after name after name of people who said, I must obey God, not men, even if it costs me my life. Pretty incredible. You know, if that didn't bring a tear to your eye, I don't know what could. You know? And so this obedience to God, when the kingdoms are in conflict in a sinful world, we need to be ready to stand and obey God rather than men. How do you think we've done with that in America, by the way? How's the Christian church done at taking a stand for the truth? I don't think we've done so well, do you? I don't either. I think a lot of what we're seeing today is because we didn't do what God called us to do. We didn't elect the right people. We didn't um, stand up for the right things. We, we were afraid of losing, and so we didn't risk. I don't know. But I think God's given us another chance to get things straight and to figure it out, to stand for God rather than men. Um, so our primary obedience is to God. I'm sorry, did you have a hand? Sorry, Dennis. This is a hard one. Okay. Because you are standing before the world and saying you will not marry a same-sex couple. Correct. We've got pastors in Canada who are in jail because they were preaching, they were reading the Word of God outside of a a, 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 a location. Right. I'm going to say that. And they were thrown in jail mm -hmm. because what they were doing is illegal, but what the other people are doing is the devil. It's hard. It's the devil. And so day by day, we are so blessed that uh, we as, as conservative Christians, so I want to, because there's a whole bunch of us that are, that are, uh, that are uh, in your same shoes you are, mm -hmm. that, are standing up for God rather than man. Yep, that's our that's our task. It's not going to be easy. It's going to be costly, but it's what we're called to do. Amen. Agree. All right. So, what does this mean next? So, we just cannot willy nilly choose not to disobey, not to obey the law. Again, Saint Paul is really clear about this: that we need to obey the law whenever is possible. I think I have four little things under your outline for this one, right? A, B, C, and D, right? One, two, three, four. Why is it important for us to obey the law whenever possible? Again, St. Paul is going to tell us why. Number one, he says, remember, God's established the authority. So when you obey the law, who are you obeying? God. Everyone must submit himself to the governing authorities, for there is no authority but that which God has established, he said. And this is where I said, when a soldier salutes, he salutes the uniform, not the person in the uniform. We can obey the law without respecting the person. And that's a bad word, without liking the person. You know, uh, you can still respect our government, even though some people in the government we believe are corrupt. Do you know what I'm saying? Right? But we still have to obey the laws whenever possible, even if we don't like or agree with the person. Second, 
we need to obey the law for our own good. St. Paul said it this way, rulers hold no terror for those who do what's right, but for those who do wrong, for he's God's servant to do you good. So here's one of these things that drives me crazy. I printed it here for you. You don't have to fear the police if you're keeping the law. I don't understand this whole idea that, I mean, I agree that like the institution of our officer, the police, can be bad people in it. That can do some bad things, right? But that's a God-given God -given gift to protect us and care for us. And as he said, if we just obey the law, we don't have to fear the law. Right? It's a pretty simple thing for me. I don't know. If a police person says to me, stop, I think I should stop. Do you know what I'm saying? It just makes sense to me. I don't fear the law because I try to obey the law. Right? Although I do know someone who got a speeding violation today. I'm not pointing out any names or anything, but I'm just saying. <laughs> All right, so we obey the law whenever possible for our own good. Third, we obey the law to maintain a clear conscience. He said, therefore, it's necessary to submit to the authorities, not only because of punishment, but also because of conscience. I mean, think about this. We, I, this isn't, this, isn't this something you tried to teach your kids when they were growing up? That you do good not to avoid punishment, but you do good because it's the right thing to do. Do you understand? Right? And that's what St. Paul is saying here. We obey the law not to avoid punishment, but we obey the law because it's the right thing to do. <laughs> we obey the law because when we do so, we have a clear conscience. We just do it because it's the right thing to do. I, 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 would you agree that this is, what, this is what blows my mind more than anything that's happened in these last couple decades? People have lost the idea of what's right and wrong. It's just weird what people think is right and wrong anymore. You know? But if we would just obey the law that God has given us, we will understand right and wrong. And when we obey good God-given laws, we'll have a clear conscience. Fourth, uh, we obey the law whenever possible because we want to maintain a good testimony, a good reputation. Here's the way St. Paul said Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake to every authority instituted among men. For it is God's will that by doing good, you should silence the ignorant talk of foolish man. See, when you do good, when you obey the law, right, you shame those who break the law. When you do good and you obey the law, you silence the talk of ignorant and foolish men. I think the key word here is this word submit. Right? Submit yourselves for the Lord's sake. Uh, when we submit and we do God's will, sometimes there's consequences, sometimes there's a cost, but God always works that to bring about a good. I think the classic example of that is the book of Daniel in the Old Testament. There's just some good stories in there. You remember uh, young Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? Right? They would not bow down to that statue. They would not bow down to the statue, the idol the, of the king. And so what happened to those poor guys? They got tossed into a fiery furnace. But did they burn up? No, they did not. They were protected. And God used that example to change a kingdom. Or think about Daniel. 
He was commanded not to pray to God. What did Daniel do? He went in his room and prayed. And what happened to him? He got tossed into a lion's den. But did he get any mark on him? No, he was protected. And God used that to change the king so that a kingdom was changed. Right? You follow the logic here. When we do what's right, when we obey the law, when we maintain a good testimony, when we do what's right, God uses that to change the world. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more later. That's God's plan to make this world run in the way he wants it to. When we obey the law, we have maintained this good testimony, good reputation. God can and will use that. Right? You all good, everyone? So here's the next one. We are to pray for public officials. I love it that he didn't say pray for the ones you like, but he said pray for all. I urge then, first of all, that requests, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving be made for everyone, for kings and all those in authority, that we may live it peaceful and quiet lives in all godliness and holiness. We are to pray for all of our officials. Have you heard us do this at faith? We do it quite often, don't we? And I'll quite often get complaints. Yeah, I will. I'm not making that up. You know, people will say, why are we praying for this person who has passed this law or who, you know, is for this policy? And I'm like, because we're commanded to pray for these people. How is God ever going to change? How are they ever going to change if we're not praying for them? You know, that's, that's the command here of God. We pray for all, whether we like them or not, whether we agree for them or not. Christians should pray for their government officials because the results of that prayer benefits our lives. We pray that God will use them, that God will turn them, that God will fix what they broke. That's what we pray about. And if that happens, who wins? We do, and the world wins. Right? So this is why we pray for others that way. You want to do this one, or should I just skip right past it? St. Paul is pretty clear that we are to pay our taxes. This is also why you pay taxes, he said, for the authorities are God's servants who give their full time to governing. Give everyone what you owe him. If you owe taxes, pay taxes. If you owe revenue, then revenue. If respect, then respect. If honor, then honor. I think it's interesting how he lumps paying your taxes with respecting and honoring someone. Isn't that interesting? You know, for him, it's, just, it's all the same. We're commanded to give honor and respect and to follow the rules and laws and pay the taxes of the government that's been placed over us. So does that mean that, uh, that it's wrong for us? I, I put it this way. Tax evasion is always wrong. Tax avoidance is okay. Do you know what I mean by that? Using the laws, the loopholes that are legal to do your best to maximize your refund, you know, so that you're paying what's fair. It's okay to maximize your charitable giving so that you pay less to Uncle Sam and more to your favorite charity. That's not cheating. What'd you say? You bet. <laughs> so you get the difference between tax evasion and tax avoidance or using the laws correctly. So if we're going to benefit from government, I think St. Paul says we need to have to pay for government. Somebody's got to pay for our military that protects us. Somebody's got to pay for the policies and uh, the, the roads that we drive on, you know, all those sort of things. 
right? So um, pay the taxes that are required by the government. Does that mean we should never fight uh, for better taxes? That's not it. We should. We we want to we want to make sure that we're holding our government accountable for a fair system of taxation, right? So that's an important part of what it means to be a citizen as well. But the point is, once that's set, we are told that we need to pay those taxes. Ouch. Don't you wish it said you don't have to if you're Lutheran? <laughs> or something like that? <laughs> Next, we are to influence our government for good. Again, this, this is part of God's plan. That, that you are not just to be uh, a bystander in how the government operates, but we are to work to influence for good. I think of Jesus saying, you are the salt of the earth, you are the light of the world. You know, think about what does salt and light do? It penetrates. Light, light penetrates darkness, salty flavor penetrates our food. And as believers, we're called to penetrate our world with the good news, with, with God's plan, with God's laws, with, with, uh, with God's morals and values. And we're called to be salt and light in our government too. So how do we do that? We can make a difference in our society, in our government, in our culture by, number one, just voting. And not just voting, voting, but being an informed voter. That is so important today. Uh, I'm not naming any names, but I just had a great discussion with someone I know and love dearly <laughs> who just voted for a person because of one issue that was very important to them. But there's a whole lot of issues we have to weigh and balance, isn't it? The, to me, that was not an informed vote. That was an emotional vote based on one issue. See, we're called to be salt and light and to, to take the time to spend the time that's necessary to be informed and then to vote accordingly, right? So that doesn't mean you have to be Republican or Democrat or Independent. You need to, every case, look at the issues and vote accordingly. Mark, we have a question. Thank you, sir. So the second thing, I said we need to vote. That's one thing. And the second thing is, I think we need to get involved in the political process. So it's not enough just to vote. You need to get involved somehow. Whether that means putting up a sign in your yard, whether that means volunteering for a candidate that you know and, and approve of and want to support, whether it means you're giving to a certain uh, you know, candidate or a certain group or something. It, it's not enough just to vote, but we also need to be involved somehow. And to talk about this with people that we know, our circle of friends, in our world of influence. So those are the two ways that we're salt and light. Go ahead. You know, I just want to comment. I think most of us are at the age that after the 60s and 70s, a lot of things changed. We, we The abortion got through. Um, we now we're at the point where men, people can't tell the difference between men and women. We have drag queens that are being um, put on at schools. The, the thing that bothers me is that we've allowed this to happen. Our generation went along with a lot of this stuff. Mm -hmm. We didn't stop. So my question is like, 
what are we going to do from now on? I have an answer. Well, I know, but I know that the left will always have people that every, they'll have thousands of people. And yet, where are we? Are, are we out there in front of the Supreme Court? Are we in front of other things going on? And, and I think that's the thing that bothers me. We, we've let it go on. Mm-hmm. And now I'm thinking, what are we going to do from now? I mean, we can pray and we can pray. Right. It's more than just prayer. It's these two things. It's voting, getting involved in the process. But I want to get to this, too. Um, my favorite saying, the local congregation is the hope of the world. Right? It's, it's when we stand up and when, when Christians stand up that that's, things are going to change. Um, here, this last point is the one I want to talk to because it addresses your question exactly. I think the key to winning the world today to winning back the world today for Christ is not to vote in laws that keep people from doing bad things. But the only way to change the world is by changing individual people. The heart of the problem is the problem in the heart. Right? This is what I believe. So here's the way I think you and I can really make a difference today is not by marching on Washington or Madison, holding up a picket sign, But the way we'll make a difference is when we share the love of God, when we share the will of God with the people that God's put in our circle, when we share that and we help them to love and love the Lord, guess what's going to happen to their values and their morals? Change. And if each one of us would love, if each one would reach one, have you heard that before? Right? If each one would reach one and help that one know and love Jesus, then what's that person going to do with their morals and their values and their beliefs and their vote? See, that's the way I think now that we Christians have to operate, you know, one at a time, one person at a time, loving one person at a time so that change can happen. That's, do you believe? See, because here, um, I think sometimes I just want to give up because I'm like, what can I do? I can't do much to change the system, right? I'm just one person, but what I can do is talk to one person, love one person, talk about Jesus to one person, you know, help one person know and love the Lord and understand the Lord's will for them. And if that would happen in each of our lives, that's going to make a difference. And that's why I'm back to this. The hope of the world is what? The local congregation, where each of us are reaching those around us with the gospel. So do you see? Don't give up. Don't get discouraged. But um, look at what you can do, which is love the people that are around you into Christ somehow, some way. Does that make sense? I see hands all over the place. Thank you, Mark. One thing that is missing is respect. Respect for life. Mm. There is no respect for life anymore. People just shooting at people for for no reason at all or disregarding whatever anybody else says. And I think that uh, we weren't wrong in 1973 when they did away with the draft. That was one of the main things. Mm. People learned how 
learned how to respect, learned how to respect the uniform rather than right now, respect the uniform is, uh, look at the, look at what the police have to go through. Yeah. You know, we're blessed here, but you get, you get places south of here. And, you know, but and, uh, I, I don't want to end the night, Dennis. I, I agree with you, but I don't want to end on a, a negative. I sad totally note. understand. I so, totally understand. you know, like the whole gun thing you bring up in the shooting, you know, I, I'm not sure that the way we're going to fix that is by uh, banning assault weapons. No. no. The way we're going to fix that is when we start to love people who are so hurting and so lonely and so lost that they would consider shooting a school full of kids. It has to start in the heart first. No, I'm not saying it's not important to pass good laws too, but that to me, I can't do much about that, but I sure can love the people that God's given me. And, and that's, I want to just hold on to that, what we can do in this. When we started, you talked about the fact that when God created the world, and he put the tree in the garden, and he gave man a choice. He didn't make them love him. And I think you can't legislate morality. Yes, good point. We gotta, you got it, like you said, you, we gotta love each other and and you need to, it has to come from the heart. Mm -hmm. And Don't you can't, you, you can't make people. Yep. Didn't you love that phrase I had earlier? The heart of the problem is the problem of the heart. That just is. That's where we got to start. Yeah. Um, okay, coming this way. Oh, yeah. Thank you for the reminder. After tonight, I agree that God did put government in place for good, but I do also believe that Satan is actively working to do away with what God has put in place. And there are many forces in the world today that are driving things that are affecting our world. And I agree, we have to do something to try to do it. And I think your point of one at a time is one way to do it. But uh, we have to also enlist our God because without him, yeah. we won't correct it. Thank you for that. He's the one that's gonna fix it. He's gonna use us, but he's the, he's the engineer. Was there another hand? Terry up front. You know, Pastor, I agree with you. We have been made lampstands of God's word and seed. And that's what you were talking about, of us going to one person can be very helpful to getting more light into the world. And when you do one, that one may talk to friends of his, yeah. and then those friends will talk more. Yeah. So we need to keep pressing it. And I totally agree with what you said. All it takes is one seed. Yep. And a seed in God's hand becomes a beautiful tree mm -hmm. that produces much, much more. All right. Maybe we just scratched the surface on this tonight, you think? Uh, but I hope you got the gist. Government is a good thing. God intended it, and, and it can be used properly and well. And we have a responsibility to make sure that we are using it correctly uh, so that God can bless us through it. All good, everybody? Oh, yeah, Sue, it's your birthday. 
And Sue uh, brought some beautiful treats for us over there. So raise your hand, Sue, so we can all say happy birthday. She turned 39 today. Okay. Happy birthday. Thanks, everybody. A tough night.